see the image on the screen there, it says one big happy family. And you might say, well, Doug, mine is not. And you know what? I get it. That's why we're doing this series. Um, it's hard sometimes to do relationships. It's hard sometimes to be single, to date, to, to be in a marriage, to parent well, to grandparent well, all these different types of uh, struggles that we can have. And so we're just excited to share some of the things we've learned and some of the things God's kind of taught us along the way. And um, I, I think of my, my son, Landon. Um, he's 10 now. But uh, when he was about three years old, he got to this habit. We would go out to, you know, like the darkest, scariest, shadiest place you could possibly go, Walmart. And we would be there. And as we're there, he got into this habit where he'd be in the carriage and, or, or the front of the shopping cart there. And he'd be all happy, you know. But then, of course, down, down, down. Right? I want to get down. I want to get down, right? And so you'd put him down. And immediately, as soon as his feet hit the floor, he took off running. And you're like, no. So I'm running through Walmart, you know. I'm chasing him. And, and Kelly's screaming, Landon, come back, come back. Now, a lot of you guys know 10-year-old Landon, but I want to show you the face that was looking up at me at 3-year-old Landon. So here's 3-year-old Landon up on the screens for you. Yeah, yeah. That, no, don't say all. No, 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 no. No, that is mischief up on that screen right there, right? And he would just come. And, and what he would do is he would run ahead as far as he could, and then he'd stop. And my heart would kind of come, oh, thank God, I finally grab, you know. And he, in his little three-year-old brain, knew the exact amount of distance he needed to get going again so I couldn't catch him again. And so I'd get to a certain point, he'd kind of look at me, smirk, turn around, and do this evil run away from me, you know. I remember this one time, um, I, I couldn't chase him because I had brain in one arm, and I'm pushing the cart with the other. I said, Kate, go chase us. He got my seven-year-old chasing down my three-year-old. One time we were in BJ's, and we're in there, and I see him do this thing. He's running for the emergency exit, you know, where it's like, do not pass through here, and sirens will go off, and bad things will happen, you know. So everything went to slow-mo. I'm imagining, like, the headlines the next day, like, local pastor arrested, you know, three-year-old <laughs> destroys Costco, or BJ sets off fire, uh, water sprinkler system, and, you know, so I, last second, I grab him right by the door and scoop him up, and we run back, you know. And, and the reason I share that story is because... I think we can all find ourselves somewhere in that story. Some of us in this room, you are the kid running away right now. You're running from your parents' heart. You're running from responsibility heart. You're running from whatever maybe they think is best or somebody in your life that's an authority thinks is best. You're just running for the door. And some of us in this room are the parent chasing after our kid right now, trying to keep up, trying to make sure that they're safe, trying to make sure that they have what they need. Some of you guys are the person in the dating relationship that's running for the door. And the other of you is still pursuing, trying to figure this out. No way we can make this work, right? Some of you, sadly, in the marriage, you're the one running for the door. But some of you are that, that pursuing one that, no, God can do this. God's big enough. Some of you guys are that single person running away from the scary single person chasing you in their relationship, right? And so, man, we can all find ourselves somewhere in that story. Some of us are runners. Some of us are chasers. Some of us are trying to flee what God has. Some of us are trying to flee our own personal responsibilities. Some of us are just feeling very uncomfortable in a relationship right now. And others of us are pursuing and trying to figure this out. And, and so in our heart, man, in this series is just to be able to bring encouragement because this is some intense stuff that we all go through. And it's not always one big Happy family, is it? And so, as I said last week, the reason we're doing this around this time of year is because during this Christmas season is huge for family, isn't it? Right? Around this time of year, there's a lot of family interaction, and also there's a lot of depression and sadness that comes in the hearts of people who aren't quite where they wish they were. Single people wishing they were dating or married. Uh, parents wishing they had children but don't. Um, grandparents maybe feeling lonely in a certain stage of life. And so, man, there's so much going on family-wise. I said last week, we're not perfect. We did not do single life perfectly. We were not perfect daters. We are not the perfect married couple. We are, new, we are not the perfect parents to our awesome kids. But what we want to do is rather than just give you what we think, we want you to see what the scriptures say. And so everything that we're going to say today, literally sometimes will be a scripture up on, this, on the screen, but sometimes it'll just be a biblical concept that we're really trying to grab a hold of and bring encouragement to you. So we just hope this is really practical and helpful. And we're not covering everything there is. This would be like a 10-part series if we were going to cover everything about all these topics. But we're just trying to respond to the questions that were given through the app the last several weeks. And I uh, also want to make sure you know that if Kelly's asked answering a question, that doesn't mean it's only for the ladies when I answer questions, only for the guys. You know, everything is applicable to everybody here today. And so Kelly is going to start us off with our first question here this morning. So this is what it says. I'm in my 20s. I have only gone on, uh, on, on one date in my life. As I get older, I keep remaining single. I'm afraid I may make the wrong decision about sharing my life with someone, both because I'm inexperienced and because I don't want to die alone, quote. 
I also come from a long line of unhappy marriages, so I fear continuing this cycle by making the wrong choice. It sounds cliche, but how will I know if I've met the right one? Okay. Um, do not be afraid that you are going to make the wrong decision because of inexperience. You know, dating a lot of people does not help you make a better choice. In fact, dating a lot of people often leads to a lot of hurt and regret that you then take into your marriage. And so if I was you, I would first look at the fact that you haven't dated a lot of people as a blessing, you know, that God has spared you from some painful and, and hurtful relationships and, and some regret. And, you know, I wish that I could say that Doug was the only person that I ever dated, and, um, and I can't say that. And not only do I wish that I could say he was the only person, I wish that I had trusted God more in my singleness that he would bring the right person into my life at the right time. Um, what we need to really be aware of is that loneliness leaves us vulnerable. See, loneliness kind of clouds our judgment, and sometimes we make decisions or we go into relationships that we otherwise wouldn't because of the fact that we're lonely and we're trying to fill that loneliness. Um, when I um, was about 18 to when I was 21, I didn't date anybody. I didn't have a relationship. Uh, I was set up on some blind dates that were downright frightening. Um, that I look back and I'm like, thank Took you, you to God. Walmart, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't have any kind of relationship. And I remember hearing that someone had said about me, oh, man, I'm just worried Kelly's never going to find anyone. And I was like, I'm 21, you know, that's not even like, a, you know, I'm 80 and I'm, I'm still single here. But because of that loneliness, I ended up dating somebody that, that I shouldn't have dated. And that relationship, you know, Doug was talking a lot last week about how your relationship pu pushed you closer to Christ. And that's not what this relationship was like. In fact, I felt like I was trying to drag somebody along. And instead of dragging him along, I, I got um, dragged down myself. And um, I knew no one had to tell me that this relationship wasn't right for me. I knew that. And I remember going to this person, and I said at the first service, and I'll say it again, that I am sharing things that I haven't shared with a lot of people. And the reason is because I think that there are people that need to hear it, that, that there are people that maybe need to um, be rescued from making the same kind of decisions that I made by hearing what I have to say. So I, I, I approached this person that I was dating, and I, and I tried to break up with them. And they said to me, if, if you break up with me, I will kill myself. And so what did I do? I stayed in the relationship uh, for a long time after that and was miserable and wanted out. But I stayed because I thought this person's life was in my hands. And, and, and the foolish thing I did, too, is I didn't tell anybody about it. I just kind of kept it to myself and, and carried that burden. But I remember when it got to be too much, I remember laying in my bed, crying at night, and begging God and saying, God, you have to rescue me, pleading, God, please rescue me because I can't get out of this myself. And to make a long story short, he did rescue me, and, uh, but it was not without pain for myself and for that other person. And when I look back, what I see is that, one, I made that choice out of loneliness, but it added to a lot of hurt and regret that I didn't see coming, and two... I couldn't see what was right around the corner. See, because that was when I was 21. When I was 22, God brought Doug back into my life. We had dated in high school and we were friends, but at 22, he came back into my life as now a dating relationship. And, and I look back and I think, God, I, I wish I would have trusted you. You know, if I knew that right around the corner was this provision that you were going to bring in, and I can't even imagine my life if I had married anybody but him, I wish I would have trusted um, you more. And, you know, not to downplay the loneliness that comes from being single, but single people, please hear me, worsen that feeling of loneliness is dating and marrying the wrong person. You know, Doug had said last week that marriage doesn't magically take our loneliness away, but I think that there are some that would say that not only does it not take it away, but when you marry the wrong person, sometimes that loneliness becomes worse. And when you're in this terrible marriage and you feel isolated, you can feel even more alone than you had when you were single. Um, you know, you don't have to be worried about marrying the wrong person like the person had said in that question. When you do two things, when you trust God, and that was, that was my lack during that time, and you wait on him. 
And you, you, you know, we get ourselves into trouble when we say, God, you know what, I'm tired of waiting on you. It doesn't seem like you're doing anything, so I'm going to take things into my own hands. No, you keep waiting. You don't know what God has right around the corner for you. So you keep waiting on him. And, um, you know, I think that we make God's will a lot more complicated than it has to be. You know, I can't tell you how many conversations that either I've had with Doug or, you know, I've had with someone else, like, what's God's will? What is God's will? What's he saying? What does he have for me? And it's much simpler than that. I think that it looks more like instead of this big firework in the sky, you know, the audible voice of God, this is my will for you, it is day by day following him. You know, it is like a father who takes their child's hand and the child maybe doesn't know where the dad is leading, but the child's going to go wherever the father goes because his hand is in him. Day by day, following him, God, I'm following your lead. You lead my life. And he's going to be faithful to lead your life. So I just encourage you, you know, if you're in this place of singleness and, and maybe with that singleness comes disappointment, trust God. You don't know what it's right around the corner. Um, you won't look back and regret waiting on God and trusting in him. That's great. All right, next question. How do you know you can trust someone? So I would just say uh, a couple different things. First of all, track record, right? As you have known this person, have they been someone that is trustworthy? Have they been someone that has kept their word? I mean, no one's perfect. We all fall short. But overall, would you say that they're someone who has acted in a trustworthy way? On the other side of that, and our hope for this whole series is that there'd just be so much grace that would come out of it, and there'd be so much that God does in the midst of situations that seem broken and impossible, is I want to say this loud and clear, that trust can be rebuilt. Trust can be rebuilt. And man, our prayer for you guys is those of you in relationships, married relationships especially, where trust has been broken, that you know that God can rebuild that. I remember when I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old, and um, in first, second, third grade, I was a dirty little liar, man. I was like not an honest little kid. And so I would tell lies all the time. My parents began to discover that I was not trustworthy. And so I remember on my dad's birthday, I had bought him his favorite cookies. And I was so excited. I was going to wrap them up. I was going to go into the garage, wrap them up, and then hand him his cookies. And I thought it was going to be the greatest thing in the whole world. Problem was, he saw me kind of sneaking around, and he knew I wasn't trustworthy, so he followed me into the garage. So now I got the cookies behind my back, and my dad's looking at me, and I'm looking up at him. He's like, what's behind your back? I'm like, nothing, man, nothing, you know? And he's like, what's behind your back, Doug? Yeah, I can't trust you now. I know you've been lying, and this and that. He goes on and on. And so finally I open up. You know, my hands, I bring out the cookies. He's like, I'm the worst dad ever. You know, he felt, he felt awful now because this was his birthday present. I'm like, your birthday present, now you're happy. You know, this whole dramatic scene, you know. But I'll never forget, in that garage, November 13th, probably 1988, two years after the Mets won the World Series. Anyway, sorry. Um, it's been a long haul since then, but there we are. And I remember my dad looking me in the eyes and saying, Doug, I can't trust you right now. But I know that this trust can be rebuilt. He said, it's going to take time, but you can earn my trust back. And so I would just encourage you today, if that's where you are, and you're the one who has been messing up, and, and it's been to this kind of exponential level where trust is broken, even kids, you kids in the room, I would so encourage you, begin the process of getting this track record back in place so something new is written now. Trust can be rebuilt. Okay. I'd say a couple more practical things. Are they trustworthy toward others? You know, so like in your dealings with them, it's not just about how they interact with you, right? Trust isn't just about you and in their relationship. It's about all the people that they deal with. So how do you know somebody's trustworthy? Well, how do they interact with others? You know, they may put on a great front in front of you, but how do they treat the other people? Like, for example, if I'm hanging out with a group of people and somebody leaves the room and then the people in that room start to tear that person apart behind their back. I now know what kind of people I'm sitting with, right? I now know that when I leave the room, they're probably saying things about me too. And so that trustworthiness with others as well. And lastly, I would just say this. Are they trusted by those you trust? So some godly people in your life, some people that you know you can trust, would they be the kind of person that those, those loved ones, those trusted ones would look at and say, oh, yeah, they're trustworthy. So be careful, right? If you're in dating world, single world, be careful. But if you're married and this has fallen apart recently, if you're a parent and this has fallen apart recently, I would so encourage you to look to God because he can rebuild that trust and do some amazing things in your lives. Okay, next question. Let me just say, too, we would love to have conversations about this mm -hmm. stuff, too. You know, there were some people that came up to us after the first service, and what do you think about this and that? And we, we're not claiming to have complete wisdom and knowledge and authority on all this. We look to the Word of God, and we try to present it as clearly as we possibly can, but we'd love to have conversations as well. Next question. Um, is divorce an option when emotional and verbal abuse are at play? Um. There are marriage problems that are difficult, and then there are marriage problems that are destructive. 
and emotional and verbal abuse um, are absolutely destructive. You know, I would never say to somebody who's being emotionally or verbally abused, well, at least it's not physical abuse. Um, you know, first off, the pattern of emotional and verbal abuse, and this is important for single girls to know, often eventually escalates to that place of physical abuse. But even if it doesn't, there is no way that emotional and verbal abuse cannot eventually affect somebody physically. Um, it would be so wrong to say that, emotion, that, that physical abuse is, is, is not okay, but it's okay to crush somebody's spirit day in and day out. Um, emotional and verbal abuse needs to be taken seriously by the church because I have no doubt that they're taken seriously by God. Um, so if that's you, the question is, what do you do? And uh, first let me say this. If you are the one doing the emotional and verbal abuse, I would encourage you before this day is over to drop to your knees in brokenness and repentance. You are harming a child of God, and God does not take that lightly. And you need to plead with him for forgiveness, for God to radically change the pattern of your life, and then you need to plead with your spouse for forgiveness, for treating them so badly. If you're the one being um, verbally and emotionally abused, the very worst thing that you could do is keep it to yourself. You need to go to the authority of the church to both confront your spouse and also to come alongside of you to help you. Um, keeping it to yourself will only allow that kind of situation to get worse. If there is no repentance on your spouse, no, no um, recognition of sin if they are confronted, then the thing that I think you need to do next is consider a redemptive separation. And some of you may hear that and say, what, what is a redemptive separation? How is that different than a, a divorce? The redem a redemptive separation is when, because of the sinful, I'm not pointing to you like, you know. <laughs> because the of the sinful jerk. <laughs> Because of the sinful, destructive actions of the spouse, you can no longer stay within the same home together. But the hope of the redemptive separation is that as you are outside, not in the same place, God can bring brokenness. God can bring somebody to the, you know, the bottom of themselves and bring them to a place of repentance so that your marriage can eventually be rebuilt. If you have done that, though, and your spouse remains unrepentant, you know, they won't even recognize that they have hurt you and wounded you, then you need to get godly counsel on how you go forward. You know, it can't just be a blanket statement from the stage, this is what you do next. You need to sit with somebody, you need to get their advice, their counsel, to see how you go forward. But definitely redemptive separation is a consideration. We've seen it work um, in marriages, and so, you know, don't lose hope that your marriage is just, you know, at the end there's nothing God can do. God can put the pieces of a marriage um, back together. But I also want to say this too. If you have suffered from emotional and verbal abuse, whether you are presently in that now or this is something that happened 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago and you are no longer even with that person, there is healing for you. There is healing for your soul. There is healing for your heart. Go to the one who said that he came to the brokenhearted to bind up their wounds. You know, emotional and verbal abuse attacks the very core of someone's identity. And one of the ways to undo the damage of what's been said to you is by filling your mind with the truth of who you actually are. You know, to be in the word, to read the word, to surround yourself with people who are going to speak the truth of the word to you, to who you are. I love this verse in Proverbs says, Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. There are no words more gracious than the word of God. It brings life and it brings healing. Um, there's one more thing I need to say before we can move on from this question is, there is no mention of physical abuse in this question, but if you are being physically abused... God does never calls a child of God to endure that kind of suffering. You must get out. You must come to not only the authority of the church, but the authority um, of, our, of, our, of our local you know, police department. You need to get help for yourself, and if possibly you have children. And with that, if you're here and you're in a dating relationship, and you are seeing signs of, of abusive kind of relationship, you are not bound to that person. You, 
it will not magically get better when you get married. In fact, I promise you that it will get worse. Get out and get help and get counseling and, and go to God for healing. All right. <clears throat> Next question. I sometimes struggle to balance my roles as both fa- uh, husband and father. I might be so focused on raising my child that I sometimes feel like I neglect my wife's needs. I've tried to address this and find balance, but it's been a constant struggle. What would be a better Christ-like approach to my situation? I just want to say I so appreciate whoever wrote this question, your sensitivity to the fact that something needs to change, that there's something kind of off and out of balance here. Because the truth is, the right order of things, the way God set things up, is actually should be our relationship with Jesus first, right? And then our relationship with our spouse, and then our relationship with our kids, right? And we live in a very kid-centric culture probably more than ever. And so it can become so easy to be just like all about the kids, all about the kids, all about the kids. And, And there's reasons for that, right? I mean, like if I leave for work and I come home, like Kelly has been okay. She's been able to do what she needs to do and drive herself where she needs to drive herself and eat some food. And like, like I can't leave Landon home at 10. I wouldn't anyway. But like, like I can't do that, right? So there are, well, Dad, when are we going to have lunch? And can I have a snack? And when are you going to take me here? And I got homework. And I got, so like the kids are, you know, they're beautiful, amazing. I'm so thankful for them. But, but there's that need and there's a constant need and they're going to express that constant need. Whereas your spouse will probably way less um, frequently express this need. Or that needs. So it becomes so easy. It's almost like, okay, I got to put that fire out. I got to put that fire out. That fire is raging. I keep hearing about this fire. And, and your spouse is on the other side of the room going, well, I got like kind of some fires going on in my own life here. But, well, yeah, okay, we're kind of busy, you know. We got kind of a lot going on. And so it can be so easy to kind of become kid-centric. But look what it says here. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. We looked at this verse in different contexts last week. But look at this. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. So what does that verse tell you? The verse tells you that as much as I hope the day doesn't come too quickly, my, my kids are going to leave one day, right? My kids are going to leave one day, and, and this relationship here is what will endure. And isn't it so true that so often the kids walk out the door, and then mom and dad look at each other and go, man, you look like somebody I knew like 20 years ago, but, uh, you know, it's been a while, you know? And so it's so important that we get this order correctly, that the relationship with our kids is incredibly important, but it's the third most important thing in our life. It's Jesus. Then it's our relationship with our spouse. Then it's our relationship with our kid. Um, some of you guys have maybe heard this illustration, but they say that if you're on an airplane, right, and the cabin pressure goes out and those scary masks fall from the ceiling, Jesus, help it never happen to me while I'm in a plane. As you're going, they say that the first thing you should do is put the mask on yourself, not your child sitting next to you, right? I think most of us will go, oh, i got to get my, you know, the oxygen on my kid. No, they actually say put it on yourself. Why? Because if you put it on yourself first, then you're healthy and able to put the mask on your child. Whereas if you go to put it on your kid and then you pass out, you are hurting yourself and your child, right? And so putting the mask on, so to speak, in this situation that we're talking about is having a strong relationship with Jesus. That's how you start putting the mask on yourself. So then you can pour into your child. Uh, Putting the mask on is having a good, healthy relationship with your spouse. So then you're able to better serve your child. And you might say, well, that's great and all that, but how do I do that, right? How, how can I reach my spouse? How can we kind of have a strong relationship as we go? Number one thing is your relationship with Jesus. But I always tell people when we're talking with them before they're, they're ready to get married and we're doing some counseling, I always say the same thing. The first most important thing in my relationship with Kelly is my relationship with Jesus. But the second thing that has impacted me most is the concept I'm about to share with you guys. So there's this brilliant guy. Some of you guys are familiar with this. This brilliant guy named Gary Chabin came up with what he calls the five love languages. And all the guys are like, oh, this is so lame. I'm not even going to listen. No, listen to me. This could transform your marriage. It could transform your dating relationship. We've actually had our staff, some of our volunteers even go through this because it helps us understand how to relate to each other so well. So please write these things down because I'm telling you, this is big time stuff right here, okay? How do I reach them? Well, let's talk about these five love languages. Gary Chapman says, I want you to imagine each of us kind of has like a love tank inside. All right, guys, hang with me. We each have this love tank inside. And there is a certain language that is going to fill that love tank up. And what so often happens in marriages and dating relationships is we're going, I told you I love you 27 times yesterday. Why are you still upset with me? How do you how do you not feel loved? Okay, not you personally, but but just give me that eye. See that? It's like that Landon face when he's about to run away. But but as uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying so hard and maybe my spouse is going there. That's not what fills my love tank. Like, you tell me 27 times, that's great and all, but this is what will fill it. So let me tell you how this works. One of the five love languages is quality time. That's some of you guys here in the room. You feel the most love when someone has just simply 
taking the time to spend time with you, to, to push aside the other things going on, say, you know what, I'm gonna carve out time for you. Like that, like you don't, I don't care if you tell me you love me today, you spent time with me like that, I know you love me, okay? So figure out, is that your spouse? Okay, the next one is this, physical touch, right? Some of us, all we gotta do is walk through the mall like this, walk through the parking lot like this, sitting in church. Some of you guys are sitting there close to your spouse, you're holding hands, you got your arm around one another, which I think is awesome, by the way. I'll just encourage that. Kelly and I were at a, uh, a dinner party with some, some other adults. Uh, it's just so weird. I never hang out with adults. You know what I mean? They were real adults. I don't know why I did this. They were actual adults. And so there we were. And so as we were sitting there, at the end of the night, I said to Kelly, I said, you know, we were the only couple through the entire night who ever touched, who ever held hands or had a... Because I think we're awesome. You know what I mean? So, so physical touch, that's what some of you guys need, is just to walk through your day. And as long as you're holding a hand, as long as you get that... That, that even few minutes, like, you know you're loved and you feel that. That love tank is full. So is that you? Is that your spouse? Often, we don't give love or show love in the way that, they think that, that our spouse needs it. We show love in the way we would normally have our tank filled up. That's why we've been driving each other crazy for so long, right? I need words of affirmation, but you need to be, you know, a physical touch thing. But I've been giving you the words of affirmation, but that's not what fills my tank, right? Okay, so the next one, as I just said, is words of affirmation. So... You're like, please don't touch me. <laughs> don't tell me you love me. Just tell me I'm valued. Like, tell, well, I guess that would be I love you. But, but tell me that um, you're thankful for me. Tell me that I did a good job. Tell me you're proud of me, right? Even parents, wow, this would be huge. Actually, there's a version of this book for parents to kids. I mean, imagine how that might transform. What are your kids' love languages? I actually have all of our families written down, just so I make sure. All right, I got to make sure I'm hitting kid this way. Or kid, I'm not actually hitting anyone. But I got to make sure I'm, I'm hitting kids' love language this way, Landon's love language this way. I should have done this on that one anyway. But um, words of affirmation, so is that it. The next one is acts of service, you know? Some of you, man, you're just exhausted. And some of you moms in the room, just like, if you could just, like, do the dishes to me. Like, that would be the most loving thing anyone's ever done, ever. Like, if you could just go fill up the car with gas because I'm not empty and i got to leave early tomorrow. Like, just acts of service. And the last one is, and this one always, everyone always thinks people are vain. You're not vain. It's just the way God made you. It's, it's gifts. And all the ladies are like, amen, right? Good timing around Christmas. But, no, some of us, man, if, if someone just takes the time to think of something that, that we, they know we would really appreciate being given, like, that speaks volumes. You know, like these are the people that you do not buy a gift card for. Never. Some of you husbands are like, I came home with flowers. I had a gift card and my wife like went and cried. That's because she needs you to do the hard work of figuring out that one thing you mentioned during dinner three weeks ago that she walked by at the store that would have been so awesome to have. You need to remember that and go get it and bring it. And she will be so cherished. She will feel so cherished and so loved. So what is it for you? I want you to think about that. This could be revolutionary for some of you guys. As you guys figure out how to get this marriage thing right, so then you can pour into your children appropriately. And so, is it quality time, physical touch, words of affirmation, acts of service, or gifts? I so encourage you to spend some time having some conversations about that and figure it out. Because I really believe God gave this man wisdom to help us be able to speak one another's language. And it really is transformational. I would say this too, guys. Plan some dates for the love of it all, right? Plan some dates, it's like, oh, you're in this dating relationship, and then you get married, and responsibility comes, and the kids come. And, no, plan some dates. Spend some time with just the two of you going out. Spend some time just having that opportunity to talk and just not be distracted by this or that, and just enjoy that. So plan some dates. And I would say this is probably the biggest thing I can encourage you to do when it comes to your, your relationship with your spouse is pray with your spouse every day. There's just no reason that can't happen. There's no reason that can't happen. But if I took a poll, I would, best, I would bet 95% of us in this room bunch of Christians would say, you know what? I don't pray with my spouse every day, even if it's for like 30 seconds, right? Man, that's the most important thing. Is there a more important relationship in our life than God? No. So why would we not, as a couple, approach that relationship together? This doesn't have to be a big, long devotional. You don't have to pray for Africa and all the missionaries and all that. No, just whatever it is, right? Kelly and I often pray after we drop off the kids to school, we pray our way home. Uh, before night, we, we pray together as a family, right? And if things come up, we pray as well then too. But man, it's free. You can do it anywhere. There's just no excuse to not be praying together. And it might just transform your marriage. All right, next question. Uh, what about life post-divorce? The shame and alienation that happens to the kids and their parents. Raising kids as Christians when maybe the other parent is against raising them Christian. And also loneliness that comes as a single parent. Um, if you are divorced and you have felt alienated, 
by the church or by other Christian circles. That is the failure of the church. You see, divorce is painful. I don't think that you fully know until you've either grown up in a home where there was a divorce or you went through divorce yourself. But no one coming in this place should receive anything other than comfort, grace, and support. Anything less is a poor reflection of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. You know, I think sometimes the world is more accepting of people who are hurting and broken than the churches, and that shouldn't be because we're all coming from different places of brokenness. It may not be the same as you, and you may not be the same as me, but we, there is a, a, a flat plane when it comes to grace. And so you should only encounter grace and love and comfort when you come into the church. Um, as far as the shame that you mentioned, I think of how Jesus treated the woman at the well in, in, um, in John chapter 4. The woman who had had five husbands and was now living with somebody who wasn't her husband. Not one divorce, not two divorces, not three divorces, five different marriages. And, you know, we don't know if these five husbands abandoned her. Um, it's unlikely that she abandoned all of them, and, and it, it's too long to get into all of it. But it was very difficult back then for a woman to obtain a divorce during, during this time. So likely she was abandoned by these five different um, men. And we get to see how God treats someone who's coming in with that kind of brokenness and that kind of hurt. We get to not just see how he treats them, but we get to now make that how we, in turn, will treat others. Um, Jesus, how did he treat her? He didn't shame her. He didn't condemn her. He didn't reject her. No, he showed her tenderness. He showed her care. And he showed her that only he can not only meet the deep needs of her heart, but also bring healing to the wounds that were absolutely there. If you are coming from a divorced background, Jesus does not shame you. Jesus does not condemn you, just the opposite. Um, he wants to bring healing and wholeness to every wounded part of your heart and satisfy your heart with him. And now I just want to spend a few minutes talking about the second part of that question. You're talking about raising a child when your other, the other parent is atheist, is, you know, has no belief in God or, or doesn't have the same belief as you. And, and, and I can't even imagine the, the kind of fear that can come with raising a child in that kind of situation. But I just want to encourage you today that that um, not only because I've seen it happen in families, but because the Word of God shows us that it is possible to raise a child in that kind of situation and raise them to be strong in their faith, and raise them to not only be strong in their faith, but follow after God with their whole lives. And we have this example in Timothy. And I want to read you in 2 Timothy 1.5. This is what Paul says to Timothy. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. We know from other parts of the word of God that Timothy's father was not a follower of Christ. He was not a believer, yet his grandmother and his mother were. Can I just say, oh, the power of a praying mom or grandmother or the praying father um, or grandfather. The fact that he only had one believing parent was no hindrance to him not only receiving the gospel, but living his life out for Christ. Um, you know, the other thing that stands out to me about Timothy's life is that God was so gracious that even though he had a father who was not a believer, he brought Paul into Timothy's life, who was like a spiritual father to Timothy, who came alongside of Timothy, who discipled him, who encouraged him to grow strong in his faith. And, and that's my encouragement to you if you're a single parent. Pray for spiritual fathers for your children. Pray for spiritual mothers if you are, as a, as a husband, are the one who is the one who has a strong faith and, and, and the mother doesn't. For God to bring these people into their lives. I mean, I said too, you know, we, my kids have two parents that love the Lord and, and, and who are both, you know, praying for them and, and, and teaching them the things of the word of God. Yet my kids still have other spiritual fathers within this place. And I love that. You know, my kids come to youth group and they get mentored, and they get discipled by spiritual fathers. So you're not going through this alone if you're a single parent. That's why it's so important that you are in a church, that you're committed to a church so that you can have others in the church come alongside and, and really help push your child um, towards Christ. And trust that as a single parent that God is going to give you the grace 
to have a tremendous impact on your child for him. Awesome. All right, next one. When, when does one go from enjoying their singleness to a dating relationship? When is the right time to begin dating? Uh, if you're my daughter, the answer is 80. And so I'll just start with that. Um, no, I'm just kidding, 40. But um, no, I tell her, dating at 40, marriage at 80. You got to get to know the guy. I mean, come on, right? But um, my answer is going to be somewhat countercultural um, because I didn't date wisely. And so I'm not telling you to do what I did. I'm telling you to do the opposite of what I did to try to save you some pain. And so I would love to hear you to learn from some, from some of my mistakes. I really encourage you, and there is not a Bible verse on this, okay? I'm just going to throw that out there. There's not a Bible verse. It doesn't say in Isaiah 7, 16, the age of dating shall be henceforth and hitherto. Like, it's just not there. So um, this is just, I hope, wisdom. And, I, and, and I'm the old 40-year-old bald dude on the stage, and when you're that hopefully without the baldness, you'll look back and go, oh, wow, like he was right, you know? And so here's my encouragement to you. I would encourage you to wait to date until marriage is within reach, until a season for marriage is within reach. And so what does that look like? And then I'll explain why I want to say that, okay? What does it look like? What does it mean for a season of marriage to be within reach? It means that um, you're near the age where marriage kind of makes sense, right? Are you getting close enough to that age? I mean, it's real tough as a, a you know, a teenager, I got teenagers now and so as a teenager to be like okay I'm in this dating relationship and all right cool where where's that head man you know like like what's that going to lead to you know and and to to wait so long can be really tricky for something I'm going to bring up in just a minute so you're at an age where it kind of makes sense also are you close enough to financial stability okay now I'm not saying you have to be rich okay um when Kelly and I got married I was making the whopping sum of four hundred dollars a week yeah, I, I know. It was luxury. It was, it was incredible, right? Um, we lived in my aunt and uncle's um, basement for about a year and a half. They were really good to us. And uh, we paid, you know, very, very, very low rent because they were very kind to us. And we made it happen. You know, we made it work. And it was really tough and it was really tricky. But I'm not saying you have to be rich, but, but are you at the place where even from a financial standpoint, it could make sense for you to be married. I think that's really wise. Another thing is, are you in a place of personal maturity, you know, in your relationship with Jesus, in just who you are as you're developing? Are you in a place where you could look at somebody else, another human being in the eyes, and God takes this really seriously and say, I will commit to you. I will commit to the rest of my life, loving you, serving you, caring for you, sacrificing for you, being selfless. That's a huge, huge commitment. And so are you in a place of personal maturity where you can make that kind of a commitment? Now, why, Doug? Why are you saying all this, old man? Why? What's wrong with you, you cranky old man, right? Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, just a few things I think why this is so important. Because, number one, I think it would be so difficult to be pure for so long, right? You're in a dating relationship, and you're young, and you can't get married for like 10 years, like, that's just going to be tough, right? Again, there's not a verse on this, but there are verses about purity, right? And I tried to encourage you last week. I sweated that one out. Woo. I tried to encourage you guys last week to live a pure life. And so I think it's just real tough for somebody to be like, yo, we got to be, we're going to be in this thing for like 10 years before it even makes sense to be married. Like, wow. You know, okay, and if you disagree with me and you feel like God has you in that and your parents are all right with it, then... All right, set yourself up to be pure. Be wise about the situations you put yourself into. Why do I say that? Because impurity so often leads to regret. So often leads to brokenness. So often leads to pain and hardship, right? And so I think when we were dating, and we're dating, and I dated a lot of people growing up, you know, just that cool, you know what I'm saying? No, I was, like, I look back, honestly, and it was a lot of heartache for me, and like Kelly said before, for the person that you put all that through, you know? And if I could just throw this out there, too, it costs a lot of money, the date, doesn't it, right? I mean, it'd be a different story if at the end of the relationship, you guys came out, you all put receipts out for the last year and a half, everything you purchased, all the places you went. All right, you owe me $3,121.76 with interest, right? I mean, like, that's not what happens, you know? So I don't know, man. I, again, there's not a verse on this, but I would just, I would just encourage people to, to wait and to really be pure and to save yourself a lot of heartache and save yourself a lot of hardship. Uh, and really, if I could use this phrase, I would encourage you to date to marry. Date to marry. Don't date just to have fun. Don't date just to have experiences and life experiences. Yeah, that's called heartache, okay? That's, that's, I, I can do that again, okay? Life experiences <laughs> equals heartache, right? That, that's really what that's about. And so I'd encourage you to, to hang in there and date to marry. And, and don't date someone that you could not see yourself marrying. Seriously. Take it that serious. You know, our culture is really lax on this. But, man, so much brokenness comes out of it. And if I could say it this way, if you can't see yourself with them long term, you shouldn't be with them short term. You know, 
because it's probably just going to lead to some hardship and probably a good bit of impurity. So hang in there. Don't hate me. We'll have some conversations about it. Um, I'd love to talk, but as, as, as a dad, and that's how I encourage my kids, hang in there, be patient, be pure, have fun. I would have, like Kelly said earlier, I so wish I could say she was the only person I ever dated. And I think I would have enjoyed my single year so much more if I just sat back and enjoyed the time that I had and enjoyed friendship and, and used my potential as a single person during those seasons. So that's that. All right. Question seven. Here we go. Marriage. How do we make big decisions together? Should I or my spouse accept this new job, for example? Should we move? Should we buy a house? Um, should we get a dog? Should we have a kid or an additional kid? Some of these questions are more or less big, but they can be tough, especially because we're two individuals with different priorities, and not every decision can always have an answer. That's a win-win for both of us. Have fun with that one. <laughs> you know, I think it's so funny how, you know, you get in the car with your spouse, and you're like, where do you want to go to dinner? I don't know, where do you want to go? Wherever you want to go. And then, you know, you list the options, like, you yeah, know, I didn't really want to go there. <laughs> but then when it comes to things like, you know, buying a house or having a baby, it's like, I know what we should do, and I don't care what you think, and, and it's going to be my way, you know, and that's it. Um, but there should never be a big decision that you make as a husband and wife that you don't make together and that you don't make after praying together and seeking God for direction and for wisdom. You know, there should never be a time that, that Doug says to me or I said to him, I'm going to do this and, and it doesn't matter if you're with me on it. This is what I'm going to do. A, a husband trying to make um, a decision without his wife's input is not only foolish, but it is not what it looks like to lead your family in a Christ-honoring way. And, and just as bad as a wife trying to control and manipulate all of the decisions because she thinks she knows better than her husband. Um, it's got to be the two of you coming together, praying, seeking God, and, and having him lead your family. And so the question is, well, what, if you, what do you do if you don't agree? You know? And there's going to be times that you don't agree. And I'm talking about like the big decisions here. And, and in our marriage, more often than not, when we have disagreed on a certain decision... A lot of times what we've done is we've kind of put that decision to the side for a time. You know, it's kind of like put it on the shelf and just continue to seek God and allow him to either change his heart or to change my heart. Somehow line us up together and make it really clear what his will is. And, you know, he's done that. There, there was times that, you know, I was so certain something should happen and he didn't want to or the opposite and God has changed our hearts. I remember this one time um, in our first house together, I really wanted to move. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to move is because we had a very busy block. Not only was busy, it was kind of around a corner, and people would fly around the corner. And if our kids were outside, I was, I was worried about them, even when we were outside with them. And I remember, you know, just saying, Doug, I want to move, and him saying, no, I don't want to move, I don't want to move, I don't think it's the time, I don't think it's, you know, the best for us, and, and just going back and forth and back and forth. And I remember I got to the place where I just shut my mouth and I just began to pray. And I said, God, I want your will. If it is for us to move, you have to change Doug's heart. And I'll never forget the day I'm inside and he's outside playing with the kids and they're throwing baseball back and forth. And he had thrown the baseball to Landon and it went a little bit past Landon toward um, the edge of our driveway. And at that same time, a Corvette came around the corner going like 80 miles per hour and just missed hitting Landon. And he came in the house and he said, we're moving. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I'm glad my child's okay. She paid that Corvette guy <laughs> no. off, no doubt. It's like, all right, at just the right moment, I was going to throw the ball. Don't hit him, but near miss. No. <laughs> Psycho. Um, so there are certain decisions that I think you need to, you know, sort of put off, kind of shelf for a time, and just continue to pray. Um, another option, I think, is going to somebody that you trust, a third person, to get counsel from. And, and this third person, the intention is not for them to go, yeah, yeah, you know what? It is time for you guys to have your second child. You know, once you guys get, get going with that. No, it's, it's for them to kind of navigate the conflict that you're having. Because when a husband and wife are in such disagreement about something, it could cause a lot of conflict in the marriage. And, and that third party can help you kind of just walk through that. Um, so that's another option. There was one time in our marriage where we couldn't have disagreed more about a huge life-changing decision. And we've talked to different people, and, you know, there were some people that were with Doug, and there were some people that were with me, and, and so they were really, you know, of no help, and, and we didn't know what to do, and we just kept praying. And, and I remember the time that Doug came to me, 
and he wasn't demanding, and he wasn't a bully, but he took my hand, and with tears in his eyes, he said to me, I'm asking you to trust me. You know, I know that you don't agree with me, but I'm asking you to just trust me. And, and in that moment, you know, the question isn't really, was I going to trust Doug? I, I trust him. I know him. I know his heart. Um, the question was, was I going to trust God that he was leading my husband on our family's behalf? And I said, okay. And, and looking back, you know, it was right. And, and it was the right thing to do. But this is why it's so important, single people, that you marry, that you look for someone who has the same heart and desire to do God's will as you. You know, because marriage is hard enough. But when you marry someone who they're not going to seek God with you, they, they couldn't care less about what God would have to say about your situation, you just make a hard situation so much more difficult. So the way that, you know, you, you answer that question is together you seek God. You will never go wrong by together praying and, and asking God to lead you. And I think that you have to get to a place, too, as a husband and wife, that instead of arguing, you just rest and trust that God's going to be faithful to your family, that he's going to be faithful to lead you, that he's going to be faithful to make it clear. And, you know, there are often different situations that people argue about that, that aren't really part of present reality. You know, you're a new couple, uh, just got married, and you're already arguing about how many kids you're going to have. Live, love God. He's going to lead you. He's going to show you what he has for your family. And then you guys can just really relax and rest and, you know, have a kind of marriage that, that, that glorifies God. Awesome. All right, last question today is, how do you support your spouse uh, or boyfriend or girlfriend through difficult situations? And I think that it, it uh, you know, some of this depends on whether it's spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend because of some of what we're going to get into here as we just answer this last question. But, you know, Kelly's gone through a season of intense sickness for several years now. Um, some of you guys are going to have to learn how to support and love and serve and sacrifice for your spouse as they go through something like that. Um, I went through several years of severe depression, and Kelly had to learn how to love me and serve and sacrifice through that. And so how do you do that? Um, I think some of you guys are supporting people, and you're walking through seasons with people who are struggling with addiction. And so how do you help through that? And that's where I'd say the big difference is. I think, you know, a dating relationship, if you're walking through with someone who's in addiction, it's different than if you're in a marriage relationship. But I think the go-to here is what we find in Jesus. Just think about what Jesus did, right? I mean, here I was, depressed several years near the beginning of our marriage, and Kelly's having some insecurities, like, is it because we're married? Like, is this a result of us, you know, am I not the wife I'm supposed to be? Is this not the situation Doug actually wanted? It had nothing to do with any of that. It was just something going in me, something broken in me. And so she so lovingly just walked through that, just like Jesus would. Jesus would walk along someone who's depressed and bring joy and bring hope and be patient and be caring and be gentle. And she would so often encourage me and pray for me. And she would so often bring um, just a, a new light to a certain situation or a perspective. And just instead of what's wrong with you and why are you still depressed and why are you still going through all this, she would just so good to me in that season. And my heart has to, been, to be like Jesus back to Kelly as she's gone through this season of sickness and suffering. And you know what? I've had my moments. I haven't handled this perfectly, that's for sure. But there have been just over and over, the, the goal in my heart is, all right, just like Jesus would serve and just like he would love, and I definitely haven't lived that the way I want to, but to the, to the best of my abilities and, and along with some shortcoming, I've just been trying to serve that way and love that way and be selfless and sacrificial in the same way that Jesus has been for me. You might say, but Doug, how do you do that? Like, don't you eventually just run out of energy, you know? Like, didn't Kelly just get sick and tired of you being depressed? And, and what if I'm, you know, dealing with somebody who's struggling with addiction? Or, like, don't you just get tired of it? Like, how do you continue to be consistent in that? And I love what we find in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. You ready for this? Who comforts us in all our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. How do you consistently support someone who's working through addiction, who's depressed, who's sick, who's whatever it might be? You fill in the blank. You have to have your own heart comforted in God consistently so that you can then comfort the one who's hurting. 
you know? If Kelly came up to me and said, Doug, I'm really thirsty right now, and this bottle was empty, I can hand her the bottle, but I can't meet her need, right? I, I'll go fill this thing up. And now I have something in my tank, so to speak, to hand to her that can then minister to her, right? And the same is true. I have to have my heart comforted in God. I have to be near Jesus. And when I am, then now I can pour into her consistently. And so I think that's the biggest thing. And we got to really wrap up here. But if there's anything I could encourage you to do, what I hope you're seeing in this whole series is the answer is Jesus over and over and over again. Your closeness with him, your nearness to him is the answer to everything we talked about today, everything we talked about last week, whether you're single or dating, parenting, marriage, grandparenting, all it's, it's all wrapped up in your relationship with Jesus, all wrapped up in what the scriptures tell us. And so I hope if you're getting anything out of this series, it's this, there is hope. There is hope, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope. Just continue to walk near him. Continue to allow him to breathe life to you. And that's going to make you the best single person, the best teenager, the best parent, the best young professional, the best college student, the best spouse, the best grandparent, the best person in that dating relationship. It's all wrapped up in him. And like I said last week, prayerful, patient consistency. I'm going to be prayerful about all these relationships. I'm going to be patient and consistent in how I interact in these relationships. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I'm going to give you a minute just to respond to him in just a minute and be able to just pray about some of what maybe you've heard today. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I hope you're hearing today is what Jesus has done for us. Like I said earlier, he came to rescue us when we were at our worst. And he came to do the impossible in our lives when we could not save ourselves. And he walked alongside us and continues to walk alongside us as we're broken and falling and continuing to struggle. And so I hope today you think about putting your trust in him and looking to him as your savior and your God. And you know what? The icon up on the screen there, the logo, it does not say one big perfect family, does it? It says one big happy family. And you know what? If you were to bug my house, please don't, but if you were to bug my house, you would find out that we are not one big perfect family, but I think I could say we are one big happy family. And we have our days and we have our moments just like you do. But there is hope in God for every circumstance we walk through. So cling to him. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. And we're just thankful that your word speaks to all these different kinds of things that we all go through on a daily basis and, and these intricacies of these relationships. And it's so practical. And so I just pray you'd help us, God, to be the single person, the dating relationship uh, partner, the spouse, the parent, the grandparent, um, the one who is divorced, the one who is um, trying to figure out if this marriage is still worth fighting for and, and looking to you for healing. God, just all these different places we find ourselves. God, we just need you so much. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here now, I would just encourage you, pray about this. Bring to him something that struck a chord with you today. And be prayerful about it. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to put your trust in him, I would encourage you just to pray with me now. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you so much for dying for me, God, in my place. Thank you, God for desiring a close relationship with me. And God, I want you to be my Savior and my God. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to do a new thing in my life today. And I thank you so much for this awesome gift of salvation. Just before we open our eyes today, I would love to be able to just be praying for anybody that put their trust in Jesus for the very first time today. So if you did that, if today's the day you asked Jesus to be your Savior, would you just look me in the eye right now so I could be praying for you? Did anybody do that here this morning? Just kind of make my way around the room here. Awesome. Anybody else? Cool, cool. God, I thank you for those that put their trust in you today. And I pray you'll draw them so close to you and do a really powerful thing in their life. In your name.